This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of December 14th, 2020. Uh, I guess we're down to um, Alex Trebek's last couple of weeks of episodes here, huh? Mm-hmm. But we'll enjoy them while we have them. Um, so on Monday, December 14th, we start out with the contestants Jeffrey Williams, a television editor originally from Detroit, Michigan, Valerie Castello, a career counselor from San Leandro, California, and Kate Freeman, a financial analyst originally from Lake Orion, Michigan, whose one-day cash winnings total $5,599. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Barbie celebrates role models. Says you, Shakespeare, you have to identify the character who is quoted in the clue. The big little or no bang. World capital bingo. Blended words. And Olympic sports, you can do barefoot. Yeah, a nice mix here. Yeah, I agree. The contestants got to all but one of the clues, and I think we maybe didn't have any triple stumpers. No, not in this round. In this round, yeah. Maybe one or one or two wrong responses, but they were uh, correctly answered in the rebound. Mm-hmm. Hey, in blended words, I liked the... Uh, the 400 and the 600 clues. Um, oh, we got the 600 first. It's a non-alcoholic mixed drink, like a no-hito or a cuddles on the beach. <laughs> I, 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 those, those names are a little much for me, um, but Valerie got that one, that one. That's a mocktail. And then right after that, we had the $400 level scene here is an icon for one of these programs. Um, you would probably recognize that icon, listeners. The correct response uh, was podcast, and Valerie got that as well. Um, mm-hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, the writers are just communicating to us that they listen. <laughs> yeah, that was for us. Yeah. We know that. Yes. The first daily double is in the Says You Shakespeare category at the $1,000 level. It's pick number 20. Uh, Jeffrey finds it. He's been doing well in the Shakespeare category. He seems to know Shakespeare fairly well. Uh, He's in the lead at 4,200 over Kate's 3,600 and Valerie's 3,000, and he bets it all. And he gets the clue, Here in this island we arrived, and here have I, thy schoolmaster, made thee more profit. Uh, And he knows that it is Prospero. Mm -hmm. Gets that right? Yep. Jumps out to a big lead. That's right. In the Tempest. Before we started recording, we were talking about my my step grandfather who um, who passed away recently, and um, I remember the Tempest well because he played Prospero in it some time mm. ago. Nice. Um, yeah, he uh, he was um, a very accomplished actor in kind of local theater. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Kate is at five thousand, Valerie's at six thousand, and Jeffrey's at nine thousand. Nice round numbers. I'm just realizing that they, because they uh, they were so successful with this board, and had a nice big daily double wager, that the sum of the scores is greater than the Coriat 
value on the board. Yeah. That's impressive. Rare. Yeah. Yes. And they get the double Jeopardy round categories. The first Nobel, <laughs> the angels did say, <laughs> historic declarations, invented languages, movies by matchup, and grammar. It's grammar, but O-R in quotation marks. Yes. Oh, I wasn't really paying attention when they were doing the category titles. That would have helped me a little bit more with the with the grammar grammar category. Presumably the $400 clue in The Angels Did Say, which was never revealed, had to do with either the Annunciation to Mary or the Annunciation to the Shepherds. Because mm-hmm. I think that is, a, there are other kind of angelic visitation passages in the Bible. And it does seem like it's you know, like a Christian Bible category. Um, yeah. But the, the only ones that are more obvious, I think, than the, than the ones that they used are um, those kind of most popular Christmas story ones. Yeah, I would agree. But I like using the, um, the Annunciation to Zechariah. At the $800 level where they asked, in Luke 1, an angel appears to Zechariah to tell him that his wife will soon give birth to this forerunner of Jesus. And that's John the Baptist. Kate caught that one. And then nobody knew about Balaam's ass. Every teenager's favorite Bible story. Yeah. I couldn't remember the name. I was like, something's ass. Yeah. (laughs) Someone's ass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that, that story is pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two comes up super early in the invented languages category, which was a fun category, I thought. It's a sixth pick at the $800 level, and Valerie finds it. And she has 8000 She wagers 3000 of that. She's kind of in the middle between Kate at 5000 and Jeffrey at 11400 and she gets the clue. The this 1887 language got its name from Dr. Hopeful, the pen name in that language of creator L.L. Zamenhof. And she got that one correct, um, responding Esperanto. Yeah. I did not know that's where Esperanto came from. Yeah. Neither did I. Although I recognized, I think I recognized the root. Uh, the third Daily Double is in the first Nobel category at the $2,000 level. It's pick number 27, uh, nearly the last thing that we get to because we only get 28 of the clues in this round. Uh, Kate finds it. She is in third place at 10200 Jeffrey's at 14600 and Valerie is at 20600 And... Kate wagers 8,000. And the clue is 1901 laureate Emil von Behring used antibodies to cure diphtheria, making him a pioneer of this ology coined in the same decade. Uh, And she takes a little bit to think about it, but she gets it right with what is immunology. Mm -hmm. I got stuck on virology. Yes. I thought that was the, uh, the neg bait here. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Valerie leads with 20,600. Kate's in second place with 19,000. And Jeffrey has 14,600. And we get the category Famous Places. And the clue opened in 1973. It includes the Joan Sutherland Theater, named for the singer. 
and the Utsan room named for the architect. I struggled with this one. I did not end up figuring out the correct response. Although when I heard it, I said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and uh, only one contestant got this one correct. Jeffrey wagered 12000 That's probably too big of a wager for this situation for him. Mm-hmm. And he responds, uh, what is Centre Pompidou? Uh, that is mm-hmm. not correct. Kate wagers everything. Mm-hmm. That is also too big of a wager for this situation. Yep. And guesses what is the L.A. Opera House? Uh, also not correct. Yep. Valerie has a cover bet with 17,401. And the correct response. So um, strategic wagers are irrelevant because right. <laughs> she was in first, gave the correct response, and had a cover bet. Right. Uh, which the whole point of going in in first place is uh, that if you do that, there's no, there's nothing anyone can do. You could you just win. So uh, yep. the correct response here is what is the Sydney Opera House? Yes, we have a children's book called Baby's First Eames, and it's all about like architecture and mid-century modern design, mm. and. It goes through the alphabet, and U is Utsun and the Sydney Opera House. So that's how I knew that one. Nice. There's also a cat on every page, and our uh, oh, our one-year-old thinks it's a Find the Cat book. So that's what I she mean, does when we look at that book. <laughs> that's, in a way, it is a Find the Cat book. Um, yes. <laughs> right? Like, that's why, that's why you put those devices in. Right. Right? Like. Sure. So that you can engage children at whatever level they're at. So, on Tuesday, we get the contestants Braden Smith, a policy intern from Las Vegas, Nevada, Margaret Delarios, a public affairs specialist from Pasadena, California, and Valerie Costello, a career counselor from San Leandro, California, whose one-day cash winnings now total $38,001. That's a big payday. Mm-hmm. And they get the Jeopardy round categories, Marco Polo slept here, What are the odds, Book Barriers, Reality TV, not going to throw away, and my shot. Mm-hmm. Shot in quotation marks. So yeah. Everything had shot in it. And uh, when they say reality TV here, they, they really, they're going, they're going for the real, you know, lowbrow stuff. This is not Great British Bake Off reality TV. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure Anarchy, Anarchy Garcia will mm-hmm. be upset that you are referring to the Masked Singer as lowbrow. Uh, she is a, a noted fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there are a number of Masked Singer uh, fans in my circles, and um, I don't know. It seems like a fun show. I do not recognize voices or know details of like celebrities' personal lives well enough to like enjoy or be able to guess who is under the masks. No, no judgment intended. You, yeah, you um, like what you like. Yeah. That was that was kind of the outlier to me, but like what not to wear and uh, um, biggest loser and um, Love Island kind of all fall into the um, yeah uh, the the like the voyeurism um, right. the very very reality of, TV kind yeah. of thing which I sometimes watch very voyeuristic reality TV shows right like but you know that's what they are right Daily Double Number One comes up super early in the book barriers category at the $800 level. 
Brayden uncovers it with only 400. Um, so he wagers 1,000, the maximum. Valerie's at 200. Margaret's at 600. And Brayden gets the clue. This Melville scribe spends time staring at dead walls, then at the high walls of prison. And Brayden correctly responds, who is Bartleby? Bartleby the Scrivener. I had heard that title at one point in my life. So that's the name that came to mind. Um, I don't the, know if I would have said it on TV, though. Yeah. The other things that come to mind about Bartleby the Scrivener for me uh, is the line, I prefer not to. I prefer, I said, I prefer, I, yeah, I, I said, I would prefer not to. I can't remember. He, he just sort of, yeah, no, it's, a, it's this recurring line that I'm sure somebody could analyze for us. I read it when I was 14. <laughs> I don't know. Um, sure. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I can really, really relate to that. I liked, uh, I liked Braden's moment in the my shot category at the $800 level where the clue was also the title of a 1964 Pink Panther film. This phrase refers to an uneducated guess. Uh, Braden responds, what is a shot in the dark? And he then he explains that was one. So that was good. that's a good one. Yeah, I would say that's perhaps the best of the Pink Panther films. Mm, I'm I not very much sure. It. Have I seen a complete Pink Panther film? I may not have. I may just have seen like whatever bits and pieces were on cable, mm-hmm. like when I turned it on, you know, like I'm not sure I've yeah. ever sat down and watched one in its entirety on purpose. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round... Brayden's at 7,600, Valerie's at 3,000, Margaret's at 1,400. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories American History, The Whisker Rebellion, Ten Letter Nations, Musical Instruments, At the Movies, and Anagrams of Each Other. Nobody knew Onward. Yeah, didn't we just talk? We, I feel like we talked about that recently. Yeah, I More think we once. did. Yeah. Nobody knew Onward, but that's okay. I mean, it's the it's the Pixar movie that came out right before everything shut down, so you know. Yeah, it was it was kind of the first of the like you can watch it at home. Yeah, <laughs> watch it at home, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, so I took my kids to see it in the movie theater right before everything shut down because at that time we thought that we dealt with COVID by like doing lots of hand sanitizer. This whole thing is your fault. <laughs> Because you went to see a movie. Yeah. We could have nipped this in the bud, but no. Mm-hmm. Emily yeah. just had to see Onward. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I did the pandemic. Um, yeah. We get the uh, daily, both Daily Doubles pretty early. Daily Double number two is in the American History category. It's pick number four. Braden finds this one as well. Uh, it's at the $1,600 level. He is at 9,600. Valerie's still back at 3,000 and Margaret's at 2,600. And he wagers 3,500. Gets the clue. In 1832, hoping to reclaim land in Illinois, this Salk leader led Native Americans against U.S. forces in a months-long war. And he thought about it for a minute, but uh, he got it right with who is Blackhawk. That's right. Blackhawk War. And then, Emily, you get another one. Yes! Back to back! I love back-to-back Daily Doubles. So uh, Daily Double number three is the fifth pick of the round right after Daily Double two. And Braden finds it because, uh, you know, he gets the next pick after his correct Daily Double. And it's it's the third one. It's so fun. And he wagers 3,500 again. At this point, he has 13,100. 
and uh, Valerie and Margaret have what they had last time. Uh, it's in the 10 letter nations category at the $1,200 level. The clue is one of the world's most populous countries. It's in the Delta of the Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers. And he apologizes to his competitors. That was charming. Uh, so yeah, he counted on his fingers. He's making sure it's a 10 letter nation and, uh, and responds Bangladesh. And that is correct. So he is now up to a much larger lead than he was before. Yeah. Yeah. He also knows his geography. He did well in that category. Yeah, he did. Yeah, this, he just really owned this board. Yeah. I thought the musical instruments category was kind of uh, rudimentary for me. But yeah. I also know that that's what I do every day. So, mm-hmm. And if you didn't know that harps have pedals, they have mm-hmm. pedals. It allows you to change the key. Right. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Brayden has a lock game. And what a lock game. He is at 28,200. Valerie's at 7,400 and Margaret is at 7,000. Yeah. <laughs> he could he could reduce his, his score by 50% and almost still have a lock game. Yeah. Yeah. They get the final Jeopardy category magazines. And the clue is this magazine had the same person on its cover since its founding 20 years ago until it chose Brianna Taylor as its September 2020 cover. Uh, and they all got it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret wagered 3,500. With what is O magazine, Valerie wagered sixty six oh one with what is O, and Braden wagered twenty eight hundred with what is O or mm-hmm. Oprah magazine. I would never have gotten there. Mm. Wait, didn't we have something like this in Learned League recently? Probably, and I'm sure I missed it there too. Yeah, Jeopardy's social media highlighted that. Alex Trebek actually had conceived of this clue and brought the mm-hmm. idea to the writers to um, finesse, but that the the kind of tidbit of trivia um, and idea that it would be a good final Jeopardy clue came from Alex, which I love. Yeah, that's really cool. So with $31,000, Brayden takes us into Wednesday. Oof. Yeah. And uh, we have the contestant Spencer Robbins, a graduate student and teacher originally from New York, New York. Rhonda Beyer, a retired educator from Los Angeles, California, and Braden Smith, a policy intern from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose one-day cash winnings total 31000 And we have the Jeopardy! round categories 007-letter words, TV comedies, The Country She Led, U.S. Fact Sheet, This and That, and Gingerbread. It's a video category about gingerbread. Yeah, from Nuremberg. Yeah. Nuremberg is the world capital of gingerbread, I learned. Now I know two things about Nuremberg. One has to do with Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, same. (laughs) I am perplexed that at the $1,000 level of the gingerbread category, we had a video of Jimmy holding up a dish of a spice in its stick and ground form. And sharing right. that in some versions, gingerbread contains as much of this spice as ginger. In German, it's zimt. I don't know why identify cinnamon is a $1,000 Jeopardy clue, but, you know, yeah. okay. I mean, I feel like I feel like all of the clues were pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, the $800 clue, you had to come up with Christmas and Easter. 
Yeah. I like I in my mind that was the hardest of the clues. Yeah. I just yeah, I did not think that that one. It was nice that, you know, the clue crew got to take a trip to Germany and have some gingerbread. I'm happy for them. Yeah. And you know, they got to throw out some 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 fodder for the contestants to play with. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the this and that category, at the $600 level, um, I, I just learned this recently, and I think it was through a trivia thing. Senrio created this character with a feline name in 1974. Her status as a cat, it's complicated. Uh, that's Hello Kitty, and from what I understand, it's not really complicated. It's just she's not a cat. She's a girl wearing a cat costume. Like what? Or hat or something. What? Yeah. Hello Kitty is not a cat, in my, in my understanding. Could be wrong. Perhaps it is more complicated than I think, but my, my, my understanding is that she's not actually a cat. Huh. Yeah. I I am Googling it now. She never walks on all fours like a cat. She walks and sits like a two-legged creature. So there you go. All right. That's going to take up space in your brain that something important could have. Yeah. Because it doesn't mine. <laughs> uh, I'm going to need a minute with this. <laughs> um. Well, while you take that minute, I'm going to talk about another clue uh, in the 007 letter words category, uh, the $800 level. Nickname for a person from Muncie. Listeners, I lived in Muncie for three years. I went to grad school at Ball State University, which is in Muncie. And because I, like, obviously, you know, we know that anybody from Indiana is a Hoosier. But because I went there for college, I associate Hoosier with, like, Bloomington. Hmm. I could not for the life of me come up with it. I was like, I don't even know what Muncie, people from Muncie called themselves. Muncians? Yeah. Munkavites? What is this supposed to be? I live there. I don't know this. And it's, it's Hoosier. Yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. I was overthinking it by yep. far. I, I, I get that. Daily Double number one is in the U.S. fact sheet category at the $1,000 level. Uh, Brayden finds this one. It's pick number 12. Uh, this is the fourth in a row that he has found over this game in the last one. He is at 2,000. Ronda's at 600 and Spencer's at 1,000. And he bets it all, which he should do. The clue is this alliterative pine that needs lots of direct sunlight to grow is the state tree of Montana, the big sky state. And he gets it right with what is a ponderosa pine. And did you know that if you smell the sap a ponderosa pine it smells like vanilla i had no idea that's how you, that's one way you can tell good um, to know like vanilla or butterscotch although mm-hmm. do not peel bark off of a tree just to smell it never ever ever harm a tree anyway uh at the end of the jeopardy round Braden is up in the lead at 7600 ron is at 1400 and spencer is at 5000 they get the double jeopardy categories cave caveats minced oaths boats and ships Medical terms, ending, and on a high note. Mm-hmm. And the high note was, well, it was about singing. They had three opera questions. Well, I guess two opera questions, because Phantom of the Opera is not actually an opera. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't know the Puccini opera, which has Nessun right. Dorma um, at the Nessun 2000. Dorma is my, my favorite aria of all time. Mm. It is the best. And that is turn do or turn dot, depending on who you are. I was waiting for you to say it because I couldn't remember which of those it was. And now I know it's because it's either. It, it's kind of both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
we had um, at the $1,200 level a picture of a um, particular actress, singer, Broadway star kind of person. And the clue, she hit a high E flat singing Let It Go and then hit it again with Into the Unknown from Frozen 2. Um, and that's Idina Menzel. A high E flat is not an especially high note, but she she belts it. She hits it in like a in her chest voice. Yes. Which, that's um, yeah. I'm going to be mad at John Travolta forever. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you mean... Uh, Adele Dazim. Uh, Adele, Adele Dazim. Yeah. <laughs> he had one job. Like, if you're... It. If you're if you're introducing someone, your your number one most important job, the one thing to do if you do nothing else correctly, is to say their name, <laughs> the name of the mm-hmm. person you are introducing. That's the entire job. The rest is gravy. Anyway, <laughs> daily double number two comes up in the minced oaths category at the twelve hundred dollar level as the sixth pick. So pretty early. And Braden finds it. Uh, Alex notes, I think you've found them all since you've been a contestant on the program. Um, and Braden says he thinks that so. Is yeah, that is correct. He wagers 5,000 of his 8,000. Uh, Rhonda's at 4,200. Spencer's at 6,200. And the clue is this, also the surname of a prolific 19th century British author, was sometimes substituted for devil in oaths. And he correctly responds, what is Dickens? Yes. Yeah. What the Dickens? I had never heard of the $2,000 level oh, response. Oh, Yeah, I've never heard that. I've heard it in very rare settings. I, I was not able to pull that. Never would get there. Yeah. Daily Double Number 3 is in the medical terms category. Braden finds this one as well. So he's found all six in both games. He... <laughs> He's just a little bit ahead. He's at 29,400. Rhonda's at 4,200. Spencer's at 9,000. And he wagers 2,000. And he gets the clue. Lithotripsy uses ultrasonic shockwaves to break up these. And he gets it right with what are kidney stones. Mm-hmm. So he just extends his lead a little bit more. Yeah. I think I would have responded initially with what are stones. And then maybe said kidney stones. I believe lithotripsy is also used for gallstones. I don't know if there are other kinds of stones you can have that for which they use that. But I think I think there's more than one correct response. I might have started vague and moved to more specific. Sure. sure. But kidney stones, I think, is the kind of the most obvious and most common one. So, you know, works fine to go yeah. straight to kidney stones. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Braden has a lot game with 31,800 more than a factor of four this time. Uh, Spencer's yeah. at 7,400. Rhonda's at 2,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, royalty. And the clue, in 1521, this monarch published the theological treatise, Defense of the Seven Sacraments. Rhonda wagers all but a dollar and responds, who is Henry VIII? That is correct. Spencer wagers 2,000. 999 he is looking to land a dollar above Rhonda if she goes all in which she almost did he misses with the response who is James the first of England so uh but with his with his uh smart wagering he drops down and and uh lands 
above her still in second place. I guess everyone is just kind of showing off their, <laughs> uh, like the wagering here is purely for show yeah. since it's double locked. Right. Brayden wagers 3,200 and has the correct response with who is Henry VIII. Yeah. So that brings him up to 35,000, a two day total of 66,000. Yeah. it's a lot of money. That's a ton of money, especially over two days. Uh, I guessed Henry VIII just based on like the time was right. I mean, mm-hmm. fifteen twenty one. I was like, I think that's Henry VIII. And then the fact that it's about something religious, I'm like, well, he'd be the guy. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Although I can't remember much about James the First, but he was the other name who came to my. Oh, he doesn't line up with the. No, does it? wait. Hold on, I've lost track of what year. James the First was the the son of. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, so he followed yeah. Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So that would have been about a hundred you know, yeah. years later. Yeah, it doesn't line up with the with the timeline. Yeah, I'm so bad at English monarchs. Oh well. Well, you could go back to the deep dive. Yeah, I should go listen to that deep dive again. <laughs> That's for everyone. Yeah. So on Thursday we get Teja Chamudapati, a clinical researcher from San Jose, California. Pamela Lee, a lawyer from Mountain View, California, and Braden Smith, a policy intern from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose two-day winnings are now up to $66,000. Nice and even. And we get the Jeopardy! Round category streaming service. Prime. Each correct response will be a prime number, so that limits it a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Netflix. Authors and their pets. Common bonds. And that word was a trademark. Mm -hmm. Um, Streaming service turned out to be all about rivers and stuff or organizations related to caring for rivers yeah yeah daily double number one comes up super early in the authors and their pets category at the thousand dollar level and brayden finds it for a nice change of pace just kidding he has found all of them (laughs) um yep it's just the third pick, so he has 600 and wagers 1,000. Pamela's at 800, Tasha's at zero, and he gets the clue of this author's dogs. Charlie was a good boy, and Toby, who ate the first draft for of Mice and Men, was definitely a bad boy. And uh, Braden knows that that is John Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. I was interested to learn that Flannery O'Connor kept peacocks. We learned that at the $400 level. Peacocks were an early Christian symbol of the resurrection, and Flannery O'Connor was a very devout Catholic who um, used a lot of interesting religious symbolism. So I suspect maybe she knew that. I don't know. I'm curious. The ancients thought that the flesh of the peacock did not rot. That's not correct. Um, <laughs> that is inaccurate. <laughs> but but uh, that sort of made them think that, that it had something to do with, like, uh, immortality or, you know, something like that. Sure. Yeah. Se- seems like a small amount of, you know, experimenting would figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. Oh, um, your favorite movie came up in Netflix. Or one of your favorite movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is it you your... Yeah. It's not my it's not my favorite, but you know, it's up there. Yeah. Talking about the two hundred dollar level? Yeah. Yeah. LeBron James is slated to star with Bugs Bunny in the sequel to this nineteen ninety six basketball film. Mm-hmm. That's Space Jam. Space Jam. Of course that's Space Jam. Yeah. 
I think they have to wait until LeBron James retires, though, for it to make sense. Mmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's Looney Tunes. Nothing has to make sense. I mean, it's a sequel. They can... Surely they can figure something out. <laughs> yes. <they're... laughs> you know how how strict Hollywood is about making its sequels, uh, you know, sensible. Yeah. Yeah, certainly I expect nothing but the most coherent plot from the sequel to 1996's Space Jam. Space Jam. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brayden's in the lead with 9,000, Teja has 2,600, and Pamela is at just at 200, so she picks first in Double Jeopardy, where we have the categories First Words, Copping a Tude, T-U-D-E in quotation marks, Man About Town, 1800s America, archaeologists, and audio dramas. That audio dramas category was, was fun. Yeah, that. agreed. My fifth grade teacher, he collected like old radio shows, like recordings of old radio shows and things mm-hmm. like that. So like we, we listened to War of the Worlds in like fifth grade, the original broadcast. Uh, and he he taught us about it, and that was really cool. That was the four hundred dollar level. The mm-hmm. infamous nineteen thirty eight radio adaptation of this H. G. Wells novel moved the action from England to Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and of course freaked everyone out when they thought it was a news broadcast. Mm-hmm. And then the the twelve hundred dollar level. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. Or this radio title character, aka Lamont Cranston, knew. That's the shadow. Mm-hmm. That and that. That has stuck with me since I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So we listened to The Shadow and like the original Superman radio broadcast. It was, brought me back. Yeah. And then we have another shout out, for, you know, like for a, another podcast you should listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, $2,000 level. Welcome to This Mysterious Desert Town is a podcast where every conspiracy is true. That's welcome to Night Vale. Uh, if you're into like Lovecraftian kind of like uh, Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror kind of stuff or just kind of weird things. It's very good. It's just like a, you know, like a nightly news bulletin sort of thing uh, for mm-hmm. this town where like vast, you know, strange magical things happen. And it's just uh, it's it's fun. Yeah, I have I, I haven't especially kept up with it, but the few episodes I've listened to are delightful. While we're at it, let me recommend that you go find um, Radio Lab's story about War of the Worlds uh, and listen mm. to that. Um, they talk about broadcasts of War of the Worlds in several different places. I think they covered interesting things that happened around broadcasting that radio drama um, in Santiago, Chile, in Buffalo, New York, and in Quito, Ecuador. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it's super interesting. Um, so go find it. I will need to check that out. Yeah. All right, so the second Daily Double is pick number six. It's in 1800s America at the $1,200 level. Uh, surprise, surprise, Braden found found that one too. He was at 13000 Pamela's at 1800 and Teja is at $3,800. Uh, and he wagers 3000 Gets the clue, in 1830, the first 13 miles of this railroad opened for service, all within Maryland. And uh, he gets this right, and this is... Going back to your quiz mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, that's the B&O Railroad. That's right. Uh, which apparently stands for Baltimore and Ohio, which mm-hmm. now I know. Yeah. 
And then daily double number three comes up as the 17th pick in archaeologists. And Brayden finds this one also um, at the $1,200 nine level. For nine. Yeah. And he wagers 4,400 of his 24,400. Pamela's at 1,800 at this point, And Teja is at 5,400, which I guess means that Brayden could wager 13,000 and change without risking his lock um, <laughs> at this <insane>. point. <laughs> uh, and he gets the clue. William Stukely thought this site was a druid temple when he excavated it in the 18th century. Um, and he looks like he was kind of just throwing out a guess, you know, kind of better say something mm. than nothing when he said Stonehenge. But Stonehenge is correct. Yep. In the 1800s America category we had a picture of a president and the clue pictured here he briefly served as the first Whig president and pamela got that one correct with william henry harrison it it never hurts to make sure you know what all the presidents looked like yeah or i mean if you happen to know that he was the first Whig. yeah briefly served also is really helpful um yeah there were a few pointers but yeah, yeah yeah I mean, you're gonna if you're gonna go on Jeopardy, you should learn the presidents anyway. So you might as well look at their picture when you're learning about them. Yep, children's books of facts about the presidents are, um, I would say, kind of the most helpful resource I encountered for that. You will almost never need to know anything about a president that doesn't appear in a children's book. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So at the end of the j- double Jeopardy round, Braden has a lock game. At 36,400. He is extending that that lock every game. Mm-hmm. Pamela's at 2,200 and Tasia's at 7,000. And we get the Final Jeopardy category uh, play characters. And the clue, this title character says, Who find my visage's center ornament a thing to jest at? It is my want to let him taste my steel. And this was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the language is a little hard to parse, and I imagine I would have a harder time figuring it out on stage. But... No, was not exactly on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh. I'm sorry. That's enough for me. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. Um, so Pamela wagers 2195 and guesses who is Zorro. So she goes for the, like, taste my steel, which mm-hmm. makes sense. That's incorrect. Uh, Tasha wagers 2500 and says who is Laertes, thinking, again, of taste my steel, I mm-hmm. guess, uh, from... Hamlet. Braden wagered 8,600 uh, to try and get to 45,000 if he gets it right. And uh, he guessed who is the man of La Mancha, which, uh, you know, not another, another not bad guess, although I don't Don know Quixote if they would give it to you. Is the man I, of La I, I, yeah, I don't know if they give it to you if, if it's supposed to be Don Quixote. Yeah. But the correct answer is Cyrano de Bergerac, um, of course, referring to his nose. Yes. My visage's center ornament. Mm-hmm. And a thing to jest at. Yeah. So again, doesn't matter. <laughs> Braden yep. wins helpfully with yep. twenty-seven thousand eight hundred. Mm-hmm. So he will be our champion going into Friday. So on Friday we have the contestants Devin Cromwell, a voiceover actor and realtor from Tarzana, California. Amanda Barkley Levinson, a behavioral genetics researcher originally from Portland, Oregon. And Braden Smith, a policy intern from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose three-day cash winnings total $93,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, states by county, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, donating their winnings, moving, Yacht Rock, 
And final RE. Are you in quotation marks? We, we've seen this all week. Braden likes to jump around. You mm-hmm. know. Yes. The, the forest bounce, as they say. Yes. Uh, but man, I found it especially hard. I don't know, maybe it's because I wasn't paying as close attention or something, but found it especially hard in this game to keep track of the categories as he was jumping yeah. around the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get the first daily double super quick. It's pick number two. It's in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg category. Braden had started at the $1,000 level, got that correct, moved up to the $800 level, and found the daily double. Uh, so he's at 1000 and he wagers 1000 Amanda and Devin have yet to get in. He gets the clue, Ruth began law school at Harvard, but transferred to this New York City school where she became the first female tenured professor. He gets that right with what is Columbia? Yeah, I thought the whole uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg category was pretty gettable. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I did watch the documentary about her that came out a few years back. So maybe that helped me some. Yeah. And I mean, she's also... Notorious. Well, that and recently recently passed and very much in the news. So... Yes, that's that's true. uh, You know, gettable for that reason. Yeah, we had... um, descent callers in here we had the nickname from the tumblr blog the notorious rbg uh her work with the aclu her friendship with antonin scalia and the one you mentioned uh columbia so at the end of the jeopardy round Braden is in the lead at 7,600, Amanda's at 1,600, and Devin is at 2,400 they get the double jeopardy round categories chinese history four letter films literature Biology, Money Makes the World Go Round, and In Excelsis Deo, which all of the correct responses will be made up of the letters from In Excelsis Deo. Yes. Oh, they are including the in. Yes. <sighs> which is frustrating Shouldn't to me. Shouldn't it be in In Excelsis Deo? Yeah, but there's actually none of the correct responses have an N. And they only have one eye, so it actually is... The in is not important for mm-hmm. the actual responses. Right. But that did throw me off when Alex said of the letters in <laughs> Excelsis Day. Like, yeah. Anyway. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I will also just briefly note, and I don't have the background to fully elaborate on this. Maybe you do. I don't know. There are different ways to pronounce that phrase. Sure. Yeah. Um, and people get really pedantic about it without realizing that there are various conventions for Latin pronunciation depending on, like, which Latin speakers you're kind of turning mm-hmm. to, church or academic or trying as best you can to make it sound like you know ancient Romans or like I don't even right. know. Yeah, but there's 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 different norms around that and so people would be like no it's ex chelsea's no it's ex chelsea's is it, mm. it, it, it's both guys it's both and also i think others yeah i just this. go with the song yeah that's how i know it yep <laughs> so yep daily double number two comes up in the biology category at the 800 level and amanda finds this one as the 11th pick um at the time she has 6400 
to Braden's 12,400 and Devin's 1,600, and she wagers 3,000, looking to be in a much closer second place if she gets it correct without totally losing her uh, her chance of winning if she misses. It's a reasonable move, I think. Yeah. Um, and she gets the clue, as exhibited by many turtles, TSD is the determination of sex by this environmental factor that affects the eggs. And she correctly responds, what is temperature? Yeah. There was a triple stumper in the Anna Chelsea's Deo category at the $800 level. Um, <clears throat> it's The clue is, this type of engine uses compression ignition. Uh, and that was a triple stumper. My, my guess is that none of the contestants knew what it was going for, but that is a diesel engine, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I knew without having to check the letters, but then checking the letters, I was like, oh yeah, it is in, in XLCs. Yeah. Um, yeah, diesel engines, that's why, uh, other than like, it's just not made for it, you know, make sure you put diesel gas in a diesel engine and don't put diesel in a non-diesel engine. Yep. Like, like, you know, not that you would, because why would you? But uh, yeah, diesel engines don't use a spark to ignite. It's simply when it's compressed mm-hmm. to a certain point, it will ignite. So if you put the wrong type of fuel in the engine, basically, it, it just won't work right. Um, yeah. But it could also be extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. So don't yes. do that. Yep. I did have one close call where the diesel pump was right next to the regular uh, pump. And I mean, I know that and uh, thankfully noticed in time (laughs) what I was doing. But yeah, that's important. All right. So daily double number three is in the money makes the world go round category. It's at the uh, $1,200 level. Pick number 18. Uh, Braden finds this one. Uh, we should note that uh, the previous Daily Double was the first Daily Double that Braden did not find since getting on the show. Mm-hmm. But he comes back in true form and finds Daily Double number three. Uh, he is in the lead at 16,400, Amanda's at 11,000, and Devin is not in the red at zero. Braden wagers 5,000, looking to try and get another lock. And he gets the clue a monetary unit called the Balboa is used in this country, nicknamed the Crossroads of the World. And he does not know it, he guesses what is Turkey, but that is mm-hmm. Panama. So he drops down to just all- Mm-hmm. And he's able to regain a little bit of a lead, but Amanda Amanda keep, almost keeps pace with him. Mm-hmm. So we end Double Jeopardy with Brayden at 16,200. Amanda at 14,200 and Devin's down at 1200. And we have the final Jeopardy category innovations. And the clue, this company takes credit for inventing modern gift wrap dating to its sale of fancy decorated envelope linings at Christmas in 1917. Devin has wagered 0, which is fine. And uh, he's the only one with a correct response. What is Hallmark? Mm -hmm. Amanda has wagered 11,000. That is too big of a wager for this situation. You could make a fairly large wager if you like the category because we are expecting Brayden to wager 12,201. And so if he misses, which in fact he does, um, he's going to drop down to 3,999. So she could wager 
as much as 10,199. Yeah. Or 10,200, yeah. Yeah, 10,200. So she's just a little too big with the wager here and uh, responds what is 3m which is a smart guess but mm-hmm. not correct and Braden, as i said made a cover bet of 12,201 and he guessed what is western union um i think focusing in on envelope linings i guess thinking about yeah. communication so he drops down to 3,999 which he was definitely not expecting would be a winning score. Mm-hmm. But lucky him. He is our champion. Uh, and we will see him again on Monday. And and with, uh, with 97,799 in four days, he's still not doing too badly for himself on average. No, that's still a very good average. Yeah. And you know, I mean, the way he played the previous three days, and even this day, he seems like he's going to be a contender for the Tournament of Champions and possibly Agreed. even, you know, maybe even the, the like odds-on favorite going into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this just goes to show that for anybody except the very, very, like, you know, highest echelon of Jeopardy players, sometimes you just got to get lucky to be one of the, to make it to the mm-hmm. tournament. Yeah. And all of those kind of legendary Jeopardy players, we've seen moments where they just had, you know... A lucky break. Um, mm-hmm. You need to have a lot of skill, and also some things need to go your way. Yep. Yep. I'd have lost on my second game with proper wagering strategy. Yes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not bitter. <laughs> anyway, that's neither here nor there. This is the time listeners when we harangue you um Mm -hmm. uh when we support you in uh supporting things that matter the media you consume um of course are lovely to support if you're able if your bandwidth and your dollars are limited we think it's more important to um be supporting social justice work in your community and the wider world and to that end We would point you, if you're looking for a place to um, connect, to uh, communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. And we would encourage you to, uh, whether it's there or somewhere else, make sure that you are involved in doing something good to make this world better. In that spirit, please also make sure that you are being exceptionally diligent in your public health precautions yes continue wearing your mask if you get a chance to get a vaccine get a vaccine mm-hmm. but don't stop wearing your mask once you have a vaccine yep wait until everyone has a vaccine so yeah uh just because you're tired of it doesn't mean it's over yep so kyle do you have deep dive guesses <sighs> you know i do all right so there are three and then one that i I, I kind of hope it would be, but I don't think it is. Okay, so Ooh, okay. my first one is, are you talking about the French Academy? I am not. Okay. Uh, my second is, are you talking about the Mongol Empire? I thought about it, but no. Okay, and my last one is, are you talking about the Boxer Rebellion? 
I am not. Dang it. Are you talking about that ass, though? You talk about Balaam's ass? <laughs> no. Okay. I didn't think I so. But. You're going to be so annoyed with me when I tell you what I'm talking about. Um, Wednesday's game. Wait, wait. Is it Turindo? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Well, it's like, I'll, I'll talk about I'm that sorry. with you. That would be fun. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm never doing an opera deep dive with you here. Okay. <laughs> um, never is a little strong. Oh, here it is. Okay, I found it. Um, it was in the this and that category in the Jeopardy round at the $1,000 level. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the king of cakes is at your door, said hostess of this chocolate treat. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, those are ding-dongs. I am not personally a big consumer of snack cakes but they are an iconic part of american life i would argue and uh so i didn't i i didn't find enough about ding dongs themselves to do a deep dive exclusively on ding dongs but i think we could make the case that there are four major american snack cake companies Mm -hmm. if you exclude Companies that happen to make snack cakes, but the bulk of their business is in, like, some kind of other stuff, um, like Entenmann's and Sara Lee, for instance. So we're going to talk a little bit about four American snack cake companies, Drake's, Hostess, Little Debbie, and Tasty Cake. And I said Mm. companies, but I guess these are brand names. Most of them are, um, those are brands owned by companies, which in some of these cases have a different name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that's the plan. Hopefully this goes okay. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I'm going to start with Drake's. Um, and I think I made that decision because I think it is chronologically the earliest of any of the ones I'm talking about. So Drake's Cakes was founded by Newman E. Drake in 1896 in Harlem, New York, as the N.E. Drake Baking Company. And it was initially known for pound cake. It's kind of snack cake focus comes later. Sometime in 1899 or 1900, it's a little unclear when, it was acquired by the National Biscuit Company, Nabisco, which referred to the bakery as the N.E. Drake Baking Company branch. Nabisco dissolved this entity in 1903, However, they continued to produce cakes and macaroons in that bakery building um, into 1908, um, but the products were under other brand names than Drake, Regina, Golden Glory, and Imperial. Um, Somehow, and it's not clear how, Newman Drake was able to hold on to his brand name for later enterprises, even though Nabisco had acquired the business and the building and then moved on to other brand names. Um, So he reestablished his business in 1902 as Drake Brothers Company um, with his brother Charles and his brother-in-law Frank Vreeland. And by May of 1903, Drake was operating a bakery in Brooklyn. Business goes along. I don't have a whole lot for the next couple of decades. But on July 29, 1924, a new corporation was formed um, as Drake Bakeries Incorporated, and Ralph Ward became the president of the company. Um, Ralph Ward was the grandson of the founder of Ward Baking Company, which is going to come up again later when we talk about Hostess. Uh, In 1925, Drake's, a series of collectible baseball cards issued with some of their products. One of the products Drake's 
is known well for is um, devil dogs. So devil dogs are like a like a sandwichy thing, hmm. chocolate sandwich with cream with like white cream filling. There's a bunch of like comparable like similar products across these different brands. So uh, it is similar to Hostess's Suzy Q's or Little Debbie's Devil Creams. Devil dogs were invented by a different company in 1926, but acquired by Drake's. And it's not quite certain when that happened, but certainly they were under the Drake's brand by 1956. Drake's launched Ringdings um, in 1958, still one of their top selling items. Ringdings are kind of come around again. Also, when we talk about Hostess, they have Funny Bones launched in 1961. Yodels launched in 1962. And Fruit Doodles. It's their fruit pies. I think they were originally called Fruit Doodles, and then they transitioned to calling them uh, Drake's Fruit Pies. A Drake you probably know is a male duck. They had this. Um, they have like a like a logo that has like a happy baking duck. And in 1981, they conducted a contest to name the duck. Um, he was given the name Webster. Hmm. At some point, they were acquired by Borden. Don't remember when that happened. They were sold to Ralston Purina Company in 1986 to be part of their Continental Baking subsidiary. But Tasty Baking Company, which we're going to get to in a little bit, filed an antitrust suit against Ralston and was successful because the Continental Baking subsidiary already owned the Hostess brand. Mm. Yeah. In April 1988, Drake Bakeries held a 100th anniversary celebration with the ceremonial cutting of a 500 pound ring ding. Um, although the evidence points to 1896, not 1888 as the date of their founding. So the celebration seems to be about eight years early. In 1998, Interstate Bakeries Corporation did purchase Drake Bakeries and added it to their line, which did include the Hostess brand. Hmm. And then in 2013, McKee Foods, uh, we'll get to them. They own Little Debbie's, bought out the Drake's brand um, for $27.5 million. Drake's product line briefly um, was retired, but was reintroduced in 2013. It was stopped again in 2017. And then it was announced that um, Drake's cakes would return in the fall of 2018. And uh, that's where we are today. Don't think I've uh, ever had Drake's. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these are a little bit more regional. Um, Drake's has traditionally been marketed primarily in the northeastern United States, founded in Harlem, right? Um, but it's expanded to the mid-Atlantic and the southeastern. But in Colorado, I don't think that you'd be able to find Drake's much. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I don't know how many snack cakes are kosher, but I think it's important for Drake's to be given their, you know, their their New York roots. Um, so uh, their products are all um, certified as kosher. Hmm. Yeah, it's entirely possible that all of these are certified as kosher, I think especially by by now. But I I didn't note that in the information I saw about the other ones. Hmm. Um, so. Hostess, we'll talk about next because they um, they inspired this deep dive. Thinking about Hostess, you may remember some hubbub when Hostess went 
bankrupt in or went out of business in 2012. And you're not wrong. Um, the company that owned the Hostess brand name went out of business. Um, and that brand name was sold to a joint venture of Apollo Global Management and C. Dean Metropolis and Company. But there was all this speculation in 2012 about Twinkies and, oh, you know, are they going to last forever? I guess we're going to have to find out. Mm -hmm. um, but it was kind of pointless. Um, Twinkies <laughs> went stayed in production or went right back into production. The Hostess brand name starts with the Hostess Cupcake, um, which was first sold on May 11, 1919, although it took a few more years for the Hostess brand name to be attached to it. Um, it was originally sold as the Chocolate Cupcake. Um, two cupcakes were sold for five cents. Different flavors were offered during the early years, uh, including cupcakes topped with vanilla or malted milk flavored icing. Sounds good to me. Um, these were orig originally produced by the Taggart Bakery in Indianapolis. Taggart Bakery created the Hostess brand. Um, Taggart Bakery also created Wonder Bread. And the Hostess brand was created in 1921. Hmm. And the Taggart Bakery was acquired by Continental Baking Company, which was headquartered in New York City in 1925. During the 1940s, they developed an orange-flavored cupcake with orange cake and icing. But until 1950, the Hostess cupcake didn't have any filling or the white squiggly line across the top. Um, what? Yeah. So in, in 1947, a guy who goes by Doc Rice was given the task of developing the Hostess cupcake further which culminated in updating the cupcake in 1950 to include a white line of squiggles across the top to distinguish the Hostess cupcake from other brands, and uh, also included adding vanilla cream filling. Uh, apparently, the updated cupcakes were first produced and test marketed in Detroit. Hmm. Yeah, so that's the Hostess cupcake. Um, Twinkies, we hear a lot about also, um, it was very iconic, invented in 1930 in Schiller Park, Illinois, by James Alexander Dewar, a Canadian-born baker for the Continental Baking Company. And he was uh, inspired to create the Twinkie when he realized that machines used for making cream-filled strawberry shortcakes sat idle when strawberries were out of season. <laughs> so he conceived of a snack cake filled with banana cream. The original Twinkie was yellow cake with banana cream filling. During World War II, bananas were rationed. And I guess artificial banana flavoring must not have been available at that point. My understanding is that it's one of the easiest artificial flavors to synthesize, but I guess it was not at, you know, they didn't have that at that time. So there were no bananas or, you know, rationed bananas. And that was what caused the company to switch Twinkies from having banana cream filling to vanilla cream filling. Hmm. But the new version was more popular, um, and banana cream Twinkies were not widely reintroduced, except occasionally in, like, limited time promotions. Hostess also has the Ding Dong, which our, uh, our clue was about. Um, produced since 1967, uh, with the exception of a brief period in 2013. It's round, with a flat top and bottom, uh, three inches in diameter, slightly taller than an inch. It is similar in size size and shape to a hockey puck with a white creamy filling in the center and a coating of chocolate glaze. And the name was given to coincide with a television ad campaign featuring a ringing bell, which the Jeopardy clue alluded to. Mm -hmm. However, on the East Coast, Ding Dongs were marketed instead as big wheels because Drake's Cakes Ring Dings 
were similar and already in production. Mm. Yes. Uh, in 1987, when Drake's was bought by the Continental Baking Company, uh, that briefly resolved the ring-ding-ding-dong conflict. And the same product was sold throughout the nation as ding-dongs. Um, but then when the merged company broke up because of that court case, Hostess again had to cease using the name ding-dongs um, in areas where, where ring-dings were available. Um, instead of going back to calling them big wheels, they then called them king-dongs. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Same time is so absurd. Uh, but then in 1998, when Hostess's parent company bought out Drake's, they were able to start using the name Ding Dongs, but they're still called King Dons in Canada. And that's the story of Ding Dongs. Then we have Susie Q's. We've talked about those uh, for a second. Oblong sandwiches of devil's food cake with white cream filling. Invented in 1961 and named after the daughter of Continental Baking Company Vice President Cliff Isaacson. And then, of course, there are Ho-Ho's, small cylindrical frosted cream-filled chocolate snack cakes with a pinwheel design based on the Swiss roll. Something pains me about saying a Ho-Ho is like a Swiss roll. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) In in geometry, similar to a Swiss roll created by a San Francisco bakery in 1967. And I think that covers the major hostess cakes, but they have a bunch of other stuff too. Honey buns, chocolate singers, butterscotch singers, etc., etc. Continental was purchased by something called ITT in 1968, sold to Ralston Purina in 1984. It was purchased by Interstate Bakeries Corporation in 1995, and the combined company was rebranded as Hostess Brands in 2009. And that kind of brings us around to where I started with uh, 2012, like bankruptcy and uh, whatnot. Hmm. So that's Hostess. Let's talk for a minute about Little Debbie. The Little Debbie brand name is owned by McKee Foods, which was founded in 1934 and is headquartered in Collegedale, Tennessee. Uh, It was founded by O.D. and Ruth McKee, um, uh, husband and wife, um, who started out selling cakes from their vehicle in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area. Wanting to expand, they bought a small bakery, formerly Jack's Cookie Company. Uh, The bakery did well for a few years, um, but they were still looking to expand. Mr. McKee's father-in-law did not support their plans. I think they were looking to him for, like, funding assistance. They decided to sell the business and start over. They moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, into a new bakery designed by OD. After some time, they sold that plant and moved back to Chattanooga, in the early 1950s, when Ruth's brother, Cecil King, was in need of some familial support. And they decided to buy back that original bakery, which was renamed McKee Baking Company, and to uh, run their business there. They moved the McKee Baking Company to College Dale in 1957. And in 1960, uh, they decided to name a product after one of their grandchildren, four-year-old Debbie. Um, So in 1960, we get the Little Debbie brand name. The original image of Debbie used on packaging and advertising was based on a black and white photo. And then full-color portraits of Little Debbie started later in 1960, 
the little Debbie product line is enormous. To my mind, doesn't have the same kind of iconic handful of, you know, sort of familiar products like the Hostess line does. Swiss cake rolls, nutty bars, fudge rounds, cloud cakes, cosmic brownies, zebra cakes, oatmeal cream pies, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> in 1991, McKee Baking Company became McKee Foods Corporation. Ellsworth McKee, the son of the founder OD, took over but retired from day-to-day operations in September 2012. He does retain the position of company chairman, and this is still like a privately owned, like family-owned business. So that's little Debbie. Okay. And then we have Tasty Cake. Mm. Tasty Cake is manufactured by the Tasty Baking Company, headquartered in Philadelphia. Uh, It was founded by Philip J. Bauer and Herbert T. Morris, originally in the Germantown neighborhood. Bauer and Morris had opened a bakery in the Pittsburgh area, but sold it to the Ward Baking Company. They've come up before in 1913. And when they sold, uh, the terms of sale prohibited them from opening another bakery within 100 miles of Pittsburgh. So uh, they looked instead to open a business in Philadelphia, opening their Philadelphia location in 1914. Morris's wife came up with the Tasty Cake name. A Boston student created the Tasty Cake Girl and logo. And then they adopted the slogan, The Cake That Made Mother Stop Baking. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. uh, yeah. In 1927, Tasty Cake introduced the Butterscotch Crimpet. Um, and soon thereafter, a line of individually wrapped fruit and cream pies, um, all of which were sold wrapped in wax paper, which is how they continued to package their stuff into the 1960s. The Tandy Cake first hit the market in 1931, but it was later renamed to be the Candy Cake. Um, It's the most popular cake in the company's history, with nearly half a million baked and packaged each day. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Half a million. Until 1941, the company distributed its products almost solely by horse-drawn delivery wagons. So these were really Philadelphia specific. But in World War II, that changed. The company sent thousands of cakes and pies overseas to soldiers in both the European and Pacific theaters, vastly expanding its brand recognition and its market. Uh, They expanded their distribution to the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. Um, But Tasty Cake is still pretty regional. I'd be surprised if you see it a lot around there. Uh, There was a boycott of Tasty Cake in 1959, uh, led by Reverend Leon Sullivan, um, heading a group called the 400 Ministers. On June 16 of 1959, they announced that Tasty Cake was going to be the target of their first selective patronage campaign, and that Reverend Sullivan would serve as spokesperson and chief negotiator for the campaign. Tasty Cake was known for hiring a large number of Black workers, but it restricted them to certain production departments. Um, It was rumored to require them to use segregated restroom and locker facilities. And there were differences in how they handled white delivery men versus black delivery men. White delivery men could have like delivery slash salesman positions where they earned commissions. And it seems like black delivery men, from what I was able to read, um, were kind of shuffled around to fill in on different routes, but never had that kind of salesman function. The company's products were really popular in the black community and therefore profitable for both Tasty Cake and 
grocery stores in black communities, many of which were owned by black business owners. Um, so the the boycott focused on convincing those grocery stores to stop selling Tasty Cake products. Um, and it was pretty successful. Um, on August 7, 1959, they announced the end of the boycott, and the company agreed to give fixed routes to their to uh, black drivers to have African American women working in positions previously reserved only for white women, and to desegregate all of the plant's facilities. The Tasty Baking Company went public on the New York Stock Exchange in 1961 under the ticker symbol TBC. On October 21, 2005, um, they transitioned to the NASDAQ and changed their ticker symbol to TSTY. But in between going public and that and that change of ticker symbol, we have um, in 1981, their research showed that the number of teens living in the mid-Atlantic states was on the decline. And so in addition to their, their previous line of products, they launched some products aimed more at adults including chocolate-covered pretzels, um, danishes, and muffins. I think trying to get, like, kind of a coffee break kind of vibe instead of, like, an after-school kind of vibe, you know? Mm -hmm. The ticker symbol was ceased from trading at, uh, in 2011 when Tasty Cake was acquired by Flowers Foods. And I should mention Tasty Cake's kind of prominence in Philadelphia sports. They're a longtime sponsor of the Philadelphia Flyers, the hockey team, uh, and they award a case of their desserts whenever a Flyers player scores. And so the the um, broadcaster, Gene Hart, would often announce he shoots, he scores for a case of Tasty Cake. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. They also sponsored the Phillies. Announcer Harry Callis often announced that a box of Tasty Cakes had been delivered to the booth between innings. So they're, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're a Philadelphia icon. Yeah. So that does not fully cover American snack cakes, but I would guess it's more than most of us have ever thought about snack cakes. So I think that's going to have to be good enough. I mean, I've thought a lot about <laughs> snack cakes, but that's usually more in the like... Flights of fancy sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's certainly yep. more than I have ever known about <laughs> snack cakes, for sure. Yeah. All right. So are you are you ready for a quiz? Oh, yeah. You got me all pumped now. All right. I, I'm sorry. This is not a quiz about snack cakes. I've exhausted my snack cake. Well, and what the hell are we doing here, Emily? All right. So we're pivoting. This quiz is called Ding Dong Merrily on High. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> With thanks to my Facebook friend, Lynn Bunch O'Neill, who helped me come up with a, a punny way to uh, uh, transition from a snack cake deep dive into a, a, into a, a quiz about something else. Um, okay. we're, we're, we're talking about, <laughs> sorry, uh, it, it's seasonally appropriate. We're talking about music and performances and whatnot around, uh, around Christmas stuff. Okay. All right. Question one. There is a traditional Christmas song focusing on lore relating to a certain 10th century Duke of Bohemia. This figure was assassinated in 935 CE and posthumously declared a king. He is the patron saint of the Czech Republic, 
Who is this man? Well, the only king I can think of is Nat King Cole. No, uh, Good King Wenceslas. <laughs> that is correct. All right, for 10 points. I love that song. I love Good King Wenceslas. It's so good. All right, question two. Uh, the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas has become a seasonal standard, but was introduced in a 1944 film starring Judy Garland. What is that film, the title of which references a certain World's Fair? Oh, I know this. Mm, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to pull it. I mean, I can picture the scene. Mm -hmm. But I'm not pulling the name of the movie. All right. Um, I don't get it. Okay. It is Meet Me in St. Louis. Meet Me in St. Louis. Yeah. Other songs from that movie include, um, of course, Meet Me in St. Louis and uh, Clang, 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 Went the Trolley. Mm -hmm. It's a fun one. It's worth a watch sometime. All right. Question three. In the second act of the Nutcracker Ballet, Clara and the prince travel to the land of sweets and are entertained by dances of delicacies from around the world. Um, There's a little bit of ambiguity around a few of the movements where uh, corresponding sweets were added. So I'm going to be a little flexible here. And we can go up to seven guesses or ten points, whichever you get to (laughs) first. Um, Don't like where this is going. (laughs) uh, Name as many as you can of the foods and drinks who are represented. I don't know this. Oh no. Sugar plum fairies. Okay, so that's 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 a yes. And like that's it. Um I know the music. I don't uh At okay. least two of them are beverages, if that's helpful at all. Yeah, I don't know. Uh I'm going to say uh cocoa. Mm. Or chocolate. Yeah, chocolate. Uh alright, so chocolate is good. Um let's go with goodness um yeah i do not know the nutcracker very well at all uh trifle Mm, no trifle is not correct uh turkish delight oh i love that guess but no (laughs) i don't even know what they would have uh cookies (laughs) uh i'm gonna say no okay uh gingerbread I'm going to say yes to gingerbread. Um, There is like Mother Ginger and her, I Mm -hmm. I don't remember the word, um, but there's like little children who come out of her skirt. um, Mm -hmm. And there's some tradition of gingerbread around that, although bonbons is more common. But yeah, we'll go with yes for gingerbread. And let's see, one, two, three, four, five. You have one more guess. Coffee. Yes. Oh, I feel like I can picture these things. I ha- I'm, I realize this, like, you're a music teacher, you should know this. I have not watched, I actually watched The Nutcracker since I was a very small child. Mm, well, you have two daughters. Yeah, we're going... Comes, Christmas comes every year, so I have a feeling that's going to change. We, we are planning to watch The Nutcracker this year. We haven't done it yet. So I imagine if it had been, like, our weekend thing, I would have gotten those pretty quick. Yeah. All right. So you get... Eight points. 
okay. for that. And there's also tea. The the Chinese movement is tea. Think like Balanchine's choreography made the Russian movement a candy canes movement. Okay. I, I mean, and I know the Tripek. Tripek. Tri- yes, that one. Yes. Course. Yeah, so so um, I think Balanchina added additional sweets to make sure there was a sweet for everything. So he also changed one of the like not traditionally a sweet movements to marzipan. Um, right. So if you'd said marzipan, I would have taken that. Um, and then the the male companion of the sugar plum fairy has a French name, which translates to um, basically a cough drop. So hmm. <laughs> if you would have produced cough drop, I would have taken cough drop also. Yeah. All right. So you're at eighteen points. Question four. Although Handel's Messiah is, I would say, more properly considered an Easter piece, Messiah sings are most common around this time of year. I'm sure you know there's a tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, The most popular explanation for this tradition is that the king stood during the chorus at the Messiah's 1743 London premiere. Either due to reverence for the beauty of the music or due to discomfort because he'd been sitting for two hours. Um, but in any case, um, which King of England would that have been in 1743? King George. Mm, be more specific. Dang it. Dang it. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay, 1743. Mm-hmm. Now I have to think back to my <laughs> deep dive. I knew you had a fighting chance because you'd done that deep dive. Oh, I gotta take a guess and say George the Second. Yes, that's correct. Oh, oh, all right. I knew George the Third was around a long time. Yeah, yeah, George the Second uh, in 1743. All right, uh, you're at 28 points. Question five: The Christmas Carol "What Child Is This" is sung to an English ballad tune that traces to 1580. In one episode of The Office, uh, the Take Your Daughter to Work Day episode, (laughs) I'm sorry, Dwight Schrute plays the tune for the children and tells them that it is about the beheading of Anne Boleyn. That's right. Um, What is the name of that tune? It's Green Sleeves. Yes. (laughs) All right. You're at 38 points. And um, we're going to call the last... Uh, we're going to call that the category for the, for the final question, Christmas standards. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to bomb on this. Uh, 38. Let's go 22. All right. For 60 points. A Christmas song that is more of a solo piece than appropriate for congregational singing uh, traces back to 1847 when a Jewish composer set a poem by a French atheist to music. In 1855, an American Unitarian minister translated it into an English version, and it became a favorite of the abolitionist movement because of its anti-slavery themes referencing the breaking of chains and asserting that the slave is our brother. Mm -hmm. Name the song. The uh, Whole Holy Night. That is correct. Yes. First Christmas song ever broadcast on the radio in 1906. Yeah, somewhere I saw that it was the second song ever broadcast on radio, but I'm having a hard time finding a reliable source for that. So we'll let that be lore unless somebody can come up with a source for me. But very nice work. 60 points. Yeah, and I, Oh Holy Night, like, 
to me, it's it's like it's such a like kind of croony Christmas song that like I had never realized it's like it it's abolitionist history Mm -hmm. and like it's activist themes kind of were were uh created a little bit of a stir and like resistance from uh kind of the church powers that be yeah well very nice work kyle um and thank you for potting with me as always of course thank you and thank you listeners for spending your time with us always a delight to share Jeopardy with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us with the algorithm if you would just just tap the five stars. Just just get on there and, and just tap the stars, yeah, please. Give it a little tappy. Yeah. Tap, tap, taparoo. A one-sentence review would help us even more. So if you have the time to leave us a sentence or even two sentences, that would be so lovely. Um, Some of you have left lovely reviews, and thank you so much for that. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon, we're on Patreon at Potent Potables. And if that's not something you're interested in, you can still tell your friends about our podcast. That is right. You and they can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1, our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And next week, we will not have an episode. Listeners, you may have picked up at some point, I know we're pretty subtle about it, but both Emily and I are observant Christians. Uh, so we will be celebrating Christmas, mm-hmm. and that is next Friday. So we will be not doing an episode next weekend, next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also going to be showing reruns anyway, some of Alex's favorites. So, you know, take take that week to just, just think back on Alex Trebek and uh, enjoy that. No recaps or analysis next week. Mm-hmm. And whatever you celebrate, uh, we hope that it is a um, a joyful and meaningful time for you. That is right. Uh, I guess Hanukkah ended on Friday, but mm-hmm. I hope your Hanukkah went well if you celebrate Hanukkah. I know we have a, a fairly large uh, Jewish uh, contingent, I guess, in the Jeopardy community. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Hope, hope that went well for you. And yeah. Yep. And Happy New Year. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll be back before the new year, though. Actually, we right? Will. I think yeah, we we'll will. be back before the new year. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Oh.